There's a boring little building on the corner of Sunset and Edgecliff. It's not quite on the corner, there's a parking lot there, but next to the parking lot. It's windowless, gray, one story, kind of shrinks next to the garish pink awnings of the 99 cent store next door. But if you spent much time in Los Angeles, you know that what's on the outside can be very different than what's on the inside. 3652 Sunset Boulevard was a rock club at one point called Enter the Dragon, apparently very hip back in the 80s. Someone told me Rick Rubin and the Beastie Boys were regulars. Before that, it was The Jungle, one of the street's many gay clubs. Right now, it's a restaurant, a really good restaurant called Cliff's Edge. Funny, I haven't been here since we moved out. What sets Cliff's Edge apart is that this really bland-looking exterior and usually packed-in parking lot is a total fake-out. Walk through the entrance in the back corner of the lot and you're instantly transported away from out there to somewhere that feels completely different. Tall bamboo trees, twinkling string lights, a series of decks wandering up the hillside. It's kind of magical. Places and buildings change hands, businesses come and go, especially in the restaurant and nightlife business. For five years, from 1991 to 1996, this building took a break from entertaining. Those were really hard years for LA. The riots were in 92, earthquake in 94, and it was all on the backdrop of AIDS. A group of HIV-positive people leased this space in 91 and called it Being Alive, a place where anyone with HIV could come and be accepted. Walt Centerfit was one of the organizers. So Being Alive came together for three reasons. And first was just for social support and to get people out of being isolated in their homes and being depressed to being around other people where they could be accepted and where people were in the same boat. Secondly, we came together for mutual information and fact sharing. Our Being Alive newsletter at its peak in this time reached 13,000 subscribers a month and people rated that as their most valuable source of information about HIV and about treatments, even far above not only the mainstream press, but even their own doctors. And thirdly, um, we came together for advocacy, for being able to uh, identify, um, you know, not as pariahs, not as victims, but as people living with HIV, as people who had a right to full participation in life and to be treated with dignity and respect and to be at the table when decisions were made for us. So that's why Being Alive came together. Um, can you sort of give me a tour as if this was Being Alive and sort of talk about what was here and what, 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 what it looks like? Yeah, well, coming in through the gate, uh, it looks like it's been rebuilt a little bit, but it's essentially in the same position and size. People came into this courtyard, and once you were in this courtyard, you were in a, a sort of retreat space. It's tall bamboo trees. It has sort of tropical-type open-air sheds around the corner of an open courtyard. There's a concrete slab bar over there in the left corner. That was there. We would have Sunday night socials here, which became quite, quite popular in the early and mid-90s, where HIV-positive people and our friends could come here and just hang out on a, on a Sunday night to have a social space that was not a gay bar where everybody was positive or at least where you presumed uh, that your status was not going to be a barrier or a, um, the other shoe waiting to drop. Um, and people would be mingling around here and there would be anywhere from 50 to 250 people in this space hanging out around 
um, these raised decks which line the back areas. Was the entrance always through the courtyard and the, then the into the back? The entrance was always through the courtyard. There was one, there were, we, frankly, some of our people, particularly who had been in this area historically, were a little afraid that there would be bias and in physical harassment even of people not only for being gay, but for being known as being HIV positive and could be somewhat unsafe. So people felt uh, an added measure of safety by the fact that we had the, f- the exterior parking lot and then the gate and then this office and this reception area that we're looking out over through big windows onto the courtyard. So we had a sense of if you come this far in, you're kind of coming into our space <laughs> rather than us being vulnerable right up against the street. Um, pe- people still had the kind of hysteria that maybe in later days we were associated more recently with Ebola or something, where that it was a fear and an unknown, a con- contagion. And many people, I heard many stories in this very room of people whose families had rejected them even as they were getting sick, whose families would not let them come home, or whose families at the tail end would would come and see them in the hospital, or particularly if there was any possessions to be claimed, would come claim them, but would not let their lovers or their partners or their friends into their hotel rooms or into their memorial services when that happened. People felt incredibly isolated. Um, and stigmatized, and they didn't. And many often were rejected by their families. Uh, many were rejected by their faith communities. Maybe were rejected by their profession or their workplace. Um, even if they weren't uh, physically kicked out, they were made to feel like pariahs. Um, we had a zine called "Disease Pariah News" for those who wanted to try to reclaim. A, a little bit of a counter push. Um, at that point, there was really virtually no hope. Uh-huh. So, in, so, so, given all, the, given that climate, and given um, just how people were feeling, the isolation and perhaps even endangerment, what was it like for people to walk through this gate and come into this courtyard? It was an amazing space. There was a sense of family and a sense of strength in numbers. Uh, and a sense that this is a home, this is a comfort. Was this a, was, was, was this a happy place? Um, certainly had a lot of happiness in it. <laughs> there was a lot of laughter here, and there was a lot of, you know, shouting or singing or music. Um, overall, to say it's a happy place, I think probably wouldn't capture the whole reality because we were always like... You know, it's like with, with my partner, Jorge, who came to being alive right within his first month of being in L.A. and who died here, and we had his memorial service here, and he helped work on, he translated newsletter articles into Spanish, and we had an article on him in the newsletter called From the Yucatan to Being Alive. Um, we had tremendously rich and loving and happy times together. But it was always under the cloud that uh, death was going to part us rather sooner than later. So people say, are you happy? And I said, yeah, I wouldn't trade it for, for anything. I wouldn't have uh, not done it if I'd have known what was going to happen. 
but yeah, I mean, I choke up. I hear when I'm thinking about people, think, thinking about what to tell you, you know, how, how much to share or how much would even people would understand. But also it just, it brings up those, those feelings in me. So it's kind of, it's kind of heavy as well as meaningful. There was always sadness, sometimes bitterness, anger, resentment, uh, what the fuck's going on? How, you know how, why this is happening? Uh, so I think that, to some extent, that was like the the, the whole story here. There was tremendous uh, joy and happiness, particularly when people were kind of freed from their isolation and loneliness into senses of community, and we had art classes and music groups and theater trips and and hikes and all kind of different ways of expressing togetherness. But people are always getting sicker.